Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. Not far from my house in Charlottesville, Virginia, is a main roadway called Barracks Road. You'd be forgiven for not batting an eye at the road's name. Much of the land that it now passes through is home to apartment buildings, small convenience stores, and rolling green farmland. But in late 1778, nearly 4,000 British and Hessian prisoners of war went into winter quarters at the barracks located in Charlottesville. Captured at the Battle of Saratoga a year earlier, the POWs, as well as some women and children, marched from Massachusetts to live in the shadow of Thomas Jefferson's Monticello. Today, much of the land where the barracks stood is now private property. Now, if you have your Declaration of Independence handy, you'll notice that one of Jefferson's charges against George III was for quartering large bodies of armed troops among us. As the barracks in Charlottesville suggests, Quartering troops, even enemy ones, was a necessary part of warfare in the 18th century. But Jefferson makes it seem like Americans long had a problem with quartering troops in proximity to civilian populations. Well, as historians like to say, it's a lot more complicated. On today's episode, John McCurdy joins us to help us understand why. McCurdy is a professor of history at Eastern Michigan University, and he is the author of the new book, Quarters, The Accommodation of the British Army and the Coming of the American Revolution. Now, before we begin, just a quick thanks to our recent subscribers. We really appreciate your support, and be sure to tell your friends. And as the mercury drops below freezing on these late November days, I think it's time we all head into winter quarters with the British Army. You know, but I, I, you know, I thought we'd start by kind of looking at what drew you to the project, because what I found fascinating about the book, and I'm, I'm guilty of this, and, and this is, I think this is why he wrote the book, is that you know, we often don't think of quartering beyond it being one of the grievances that gets lumped into the colonist dispute with Great Britain. You know, there's Jefferson cites it in the Declaration as one of the grievances against the king, you know, for quartering troops amongst us. But what I find really interesting is that, you know, you argue for most of colonial American history, colonists tolerated, if not, if they didn't outright welcome troops amongst them. And, and I, you know, I want to unpack this as we go along today, but I, I thought we might start by talking about, you know, what drew you to this history in the sure. first place? Where did this come from? Sure. Yeah, no, I, I, a couple of places. Uh, so I, I wrote, my first book was on uh, uh, unmarried men in early America, uh, citizen bachelors. And so when that came to a conclusion, when I published that, of course, I was looking for a second project mm. because this is the only way you get time off from teaching yeah. <laughs> is developing a new project. So, uh, and so I, I, I had a couple of false starts and realized that the best place to do would be to go down the road. So I'm in Ypsilanti, Michigan, uh-huh. and just about 10 miles down the road is Ann Arbor, which is where the University of Michigan is located, right. and uh, they have the William L. Clements Library, which is a fantastic collection. And I know I'm saying this to someone on the East Coast, but for us in the Midwest, it's, it's really unique to have this oh, yeah. kind of collection of, of early American documents. So uh, I always give my students the advice, if you can't come up with a project, go sit in an archive and start reading until you find something. Mm-hmm. And so I took my own advice. And I went in January of 2011 and just sat and started going through documents. And, and, it, and it is like sort of going into a time machine, right? You're sort of transported sure. to the past and uh, digging through. Uh, and I think came across the Thomas Gage papers. Of course, Gage uh-huh. was the commander-in-chief of the British Army from 1763 to 1775. And, he, and it's, a, it's a beautiful collection. It's been lovingly preserved. But it's all the correspondence, ingoing and outgoing, uh, all dark uh, ink, uh, beautiful paper. So it's, a, it's almost a complete record of the British Army. Uh, at least from the top looking down. And so I started digging through it, and I realized that uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff about quartering, because as commander-in-chief, he's mm-hmm. very interested in where these men are going to sleep, 
and where they're going to take their meals. Uh, and of course, I, having taught the American Revolution for a number of years, realized no one had ever written a book on the Quartering Act. Sure. And so I thought, well, I can maybe plug this hole. Uh, of course, this always raises the question of uh, why write a book about quartering? Right, uh, right. Uh, I had a colleague who used to laugh at me. Uh, I'd come in every morning and she'd say, well, how's, <laughs> how's that book on quartering going? Uh, sort of convinced that, uh, can you really get a book out of this one, this one law? Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, it was a couple of things. I mean, one was, of course, the thing was drew me to it was the fact that uh, I had even taught it the wrong way, taught it that uh, the Quartering Act forced soldiers into people's homes, mm-hmm. and of course this is what they object to, and uh, this is why they declare revolution. I find out that this isn't actually true. Right. Uh, That's what everybody thinks, right? Yeah, oh, so, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, again, I, got, I was guilty of it, too, <laughs> in, in classrooms. So there, there are students out there, graduates of Eastern Michigan out there, uh, going around thinking that the Quartering Act forced soldiers into people's homes. Uh, so, so I, I, I decided to sort of get deeper into it. So, mm-hmm. I mean, one, where does the law come from, the execution of the law? Uh, but then sort of a larger uh, look into soldier-civilian relations, which uh, I guess to, to a certain extent uh, goes back to my own childhood. I grew up in uh, Leavenworth, Kansas, which is outside oh, of an active military right. base. Uh, and so this was, this was something that, that he thought, this sort of soldier-civilian relationship was something that really fascinated mm-hmm. me. And to sort of put that in the context of the late colonial era with the coming of the revolution mm-hmm. uh, to sort of get at some of these issues. And then figure out what's going on from yeah. there. Um, let's get some terms on the table before we proceed, because sure. some of the terms are actually quite important. And maybe we'll just start with an easy one. And also, this is something I didn't know, because you always hear the phrase, well, the, you know, General Gage needs to build, build up the troops somewhere. Right. What does it actually mean? What does billeting actually mean? Well, yeah, billets, billeting a friend comes from the French, and it literally means ticket or bill. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's where we get the term bill from. Uh, so it was the idea that if, uh, if the army came to town, and uh, an officer put troops either in your house or your tavern or a building, uh, he would then was supposed to give you a ticket, uh, which then you could, a billet, uh, which you could then take to the civil, civilian authorities at some later point to get money uh, for uh, basically a bill to have someone pay your bill. It's like an IOU in a, it is. In a sense yeah. for, for yeah. keeping a soldier in your house or right. somewhere in your tavern. Right. And then the, the other one, the big thing that kind of structures the book is space or spatial history. You know, that's a major, a major concept that you deploy, uh, deploy, we're talking about armies, uh, in the book. And I thought it might be helpful if, if you could give us a sense of, you know, what does it mean to treat space as a historical category? Because, you know, we often talk about using race or gender as a category to analyze documents in certain ways and interpret the past in certain ways. What does it mean to actually use Space is a concept. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, a lot of this comes out of the work of geographers and human geography and historians are uh, notorious uh, uh, thieves, uh, stealing <laughs> ideas from other disciplines. But uh, uh, yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's, 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 it's uh, thinking of space, the literature that comes out about space is, is sort of how do we, what are, what do, why do certain places have the meaning we, we give them mm-hmm. and not sort of just the specific place like a specific city or specific uh, building, mm-hmm. but sort of larger concepts of how do we think of the home? How do we define the home? How do we define a city? How do we define notions of country? Uh, and that these are, sure. these are ideas that we sort of come to as a society that are culturally relevant uh, and, of course, are always changing. Mm-hmm. They're always being challenged and, and shifting over time. And so I came to it uh, with, with this issue of quartering. One was sort of... Uh, it, it was the basic question of, uh, this is a contentious issue by the 1750s of uh, American colonists, but also Britons uh, back in England are mm-hmm. saying, we do not want soldiers in our home. Uh, they can go to the tavern, we'll build barracks for them, they can go into an uninhabited building. What is it about the home yeah. that makes it uh, a space where soldiers can't go? Mm-hmm. And so there's something there about how they're thinking about the house. And of course, 
this is very relevant to us today, I think, because I'm not sure our ideas of the home have really changed that much, sure. at least in terms of allowing agents of the state, whether soldiers or just uh, sheriffs or mm-hmm. uh, you know, bureaucrats, uh, uh, coming into our home. So, so getting it, I mean, that's where I, where I started with it. What is it about the home? Mm-hmm. How is that idea changing? How is that idea changing right there in the middle of the 18th century to something that feels very familiar to us? but that also suggests that the home, if you go back to, say, 1700 yeah. or 1650, actually means something very different to people sure. uh, than it means to us today. Yeah, I mean, I think we, you think about the military, the army, the first thing you probably think about is the army moving through geographic space, but you're not really thinking about the, the sort of more intimate spaces where they actually exist in, you know, or coincide with colonists, yeah. you know, Boston, Philadelphia, Massachusetts, places like that. But you, you find that... Um, the origins, really, of, of how Anglo-Americans think about quartering and then think about its relationship to space goes back a pretty long way, uh, you know, almost a thousand years to right. the, the Anglo or the uh, Norman Conquest of 1066 and King William I or William the Conqueror. Uh, so, what, you know, what was, why, why do you see that as an important moment for how the English are thinking about quartering troops? And we'll get into how that plays yeah. into Anglo-American thought in the 18th century, but it seemed to me to be a sort of pretty seminal moment. Yeah, I, I, I mean, and it, it's, I mean, quartering, of course, is, uh, you know, you have to put, you have troops, you have to put them somewhere. Uh, it's a place where they can store their effects, they can sleep, they can mm-hmm. uh, take their meals. And, and this issue of where do you put them is, is an ancient concept, yeah. right? So I, 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 this shows up in the Bible, right? In the book of Judges, you have uh, the army comes to town, and basically there's not hospitality, mm-hmm. and so then the, the army comes back and destroys the town. Yeah. Uh, and in the book of <laughs> Nehemiah, you have them building barracks. Uh, yeah. I mean, so these are ancient concepts. Uh, but the story that, that gets told in the Anglo, at least within English history, is that uh, you have, for defense, are relying upon a militia. And when you have a militia, you don't need a place to store soldiers because sure. they go home at the end of the day. Uh, or, or they, they take a place. But uh, when William the Conqueror arrives in 1066, he brings a, a, a Norman army, uh, and they don't have homes to go into. And mm-hmm. so this is part of, uh, he starts quartering troops in people's houses. Uh, he also, of, of course, starts thinking about, I have to have a place to store these soldiers other than people's homes. And yeah. you know, this, this is part of the Tower of London is, is ultimately, I mean, it's his castle, it's his administrative center, but it's also about having a place to barrack mm-hmm. troops. Uh, so the, these are... Uh, I, I mean, I'm never sure how much of this is a, uh, uh, you know, the English telling of the story, right? We didn't yeah. have issues with quartering until those damn French showed up <laughs> and, <laughs> exactly. and pushed it on us. But, uh, but I mean, that's, that's uh, for my purposes, looking at the 18th yeah. century, 1066 is a good starting point. But it makes sense, right? Because it, seem, it seems at that point, then they had to really start to think about regulations governing where you're going to put troops and how, you know, how you're going to compensate civilians for keeping them in the home and whatnot. Right. And, and um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like the damn French. It's all their fault. Right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, how does this evolve over the next several centuries? I mean, I guess we can fast forward to the 17th century because that, it seems to me that that's, um, or at least it seems to me from reading your book, that's when things really begin to change. Yeah. Um, you know, what's, what's driving a shift to how th- uh, both the English and then the Americans are thinking about the relationship between civilians and soldiers and, right. and where they live in proximity to each other. Right. Well, the, the complaints throughout the medieval era uh, are always about uh, free quartering and forced quartering, that, that soldiers are being put in your house uh, without, against your will, against mm-hmm. the will of the homeowner, and that uh, they may give you a billet, 
but then when you go to get money for that, yeah. no one's going to give you any money for it. So you're you're, you're getting you're getting stiffed. Uh, and yeah, by the 17th century, uh, this shows up a lot in the rhetoric uh, during Charles I, during the Civil War, uh, leading up to the the Glorious Revolution. And this is a constant complaint of uh, quartering soldiers in people's homes is is mentioned in the Petition of Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's cited by both uh, the Roundheads uh, and the and the and the Royalists uh, during the yeah. Civil War, although they both do it. Uh, and so it's not until so with the glorious revolution, with the uh, the Bill of Rights of 1689, this is this is uh, part of the charge against James II for mm-hmm. why he is an illegitimate king, uh, is because he was quartering soldiers in people's homes. And so after the revolution, they they passed the Mutiny Act of 1689, mm-hmm. which is the first place or the first time Parliament writes down soldiers can only be quartered in public houses; they cannot be sold, quartered in private houses. I see. Yeah, and this is really the first time we're seeing, at least in that context, these w- use of these words public and private, uh-huh. which is really interesting because they're trying to dis- distinguish between taverns and where people live, domiciles. Sure. Uh, but that's that's sort of the beginning and uh, of that. And these ideas start do start filtering into the colonies, uh, but you're not going to see that type of language showing up in British law that applies to the American colonies until the Quartering Act. Uh, the different colonies, uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, New York, Massachusetts uh, will in the late 17th century both pass laws, statements oh, right. of uh, no soldiers in people's homes. Uh, it kind of gets ignored yeah. at times. But uh, well, how, How's the nature of the army itself or, or the need for armies in England and America driving this change as well and, and driving this, this shift from thinking about uh, homes as, uh, as sort of more communal spaces into clearly distinct private and public spaces. Right, right. Well, I, I think there are a couple of things going on. I mean, one is the, one is the notion that the army is just getting a lot bigger uh, during the wars with France in the 18th century. These are, this is a massive army, right? This is tens of thousands of men. This is just way too many people to get into homes uh, mm-hmm. or even taverns at that point. Uh, uh, so there, there's that. Uh, there, there's also the notion that the home is, is being imagined in, as a private space. Uh, so uh, notions that mean what the ideas that will, of course, evolve into the Fourth Amendment, uh, legal search and seizure, uh, yeah. the man's house, at home is castle. These are also sort of legal ideas mm-hmm. that are emerging, perkling up during the 17th century. And that goes back to the petition of right, right? Isn't that, is that, didn't Edward Coke say that? Or he says that yeah. in his case. He says it, but yeah, yeah, the same yeah. case, yeah. Man's king is his castle or uh-huh. something to that effect. Uh-huh. Right. So it's it's an early notion of, of what's going to be privacy or what, we, yeah. what will become privacy at a later date. Uh, and I think the other push is, of course, the army's professionalizing. So mm-hmm. it's not just growing, but it's it's trying to shift from uh, there's a lord who goes out and raises guys and, and they fight for a couple days or a couple weeks and mm-hmm. see what happens to uh, military training, uh, much more sophisticated weaponry, technology, um, uh, drilling. And in that situation, you don't want troops actually quartered all over a town. Because if you go into right. a town, you have to put troops, scatter them all over town, a couple in each house. Mm-hmm. Uh, which means that's very bad for discipline. It's very easy for men to walk off, walk off the job, <laughs> uh, deserters, uh, and, then, and then they they get they get lazy, they get out of practice. Yeah. So uh, the army wants to concentrate forces. They don't want to quarter in private homes. They want to concentrate them. Uh, the army in England wants to start building barracks, mm-hmm. but there's a resistance to building barracks in England. Uh, but there, but this is becoming very common in France at this time. Yeah. Uh, as as for military discipline, what, what is the resistance to building barracks in England? Because I mean, I'm just thinking. One of the striking things I remember when I was walking around Windsor a few years ago is you, you walk down the street from the castle, and there's, I think it's the Coldstream Guards are yeah. right there in a barracks. And I thought, well, this is really interesting um, in terms of uh, uh, comparing it against sort of American military geography. Where, you know, there's a, there's a base right down the road here from mm-hmm. Mount Vernon, but 
you know, that those barracks were smack dab in the middle of that town. And yeah. I thought, well, that's that's really fascinating. Yeah, no, I think there's a great uh, uh, twist in all of this that uh, in the 18th century, the British do not want to build barracks because they believe by building barracks, this will mean the standing army will be permanent. Ah, I see. And of course, in Britain, every year they have to pass a new mutiny act yeah. justifying the existence of the army. Uh, so Parliament can always theoretically uh, reject the army, re- remove the army. But uh, so the British resist it. Uh, and it's interesting because uh, the American colonists in the 1750s build barracks in New York, in yep. Philadelphia, in Charleston, ultimately in Boston, uh, throughout New Jersey. Uh, the British do, throughout the 1750s, 60s, 70s, do not build barracks. Uh, or if they have them, they're, they're concealed, they're, they're at the periphery. Yeah. It's actually during the 1790s. At the same moment that the Americans go through uh, and tear down all their barracks yeah, yeah. in the middle of big cities is the same moment the British put, put them up. And it because it's because of the Napoleonic Wars right. or the Wars of the French Revolution, which lead into the Napoleonic Threat Wars. Threat of invasion from France and yeah. all that kind of stuff. The, yeah. the second Norman Conquest, right. possibly. <laughs> um, well, it raises an interesting question then. So, you know, you talk about the English Mutiny Act of 1689, and that was really important for distinguishing between public and private, particularly in England. But how is that shaping the military geography, as you put it, of North America in this period and, and into the 18th century? Yeah, um, well, and I think some of this is, uh, it's armies before the, before the Seven Years' War, before the French and Indian War in, in the American colonies are, are um, irregular. Uh-huh. Uh, they're provincial armies or they're militias. Uh, they tend to only come together when there's a, when there's an, uh, a war going on or a particular incident. Um, so most troops aren't lingering very long mm-hmm. uh, if they're in town. Uh, most are going to the frontier other or places. yeah other places. Uh, it's it's the arrival of the troops with the with the, with the French and Indian War yeah. in 1755 and 1756, where there's suddenly this massive uh, force of British soldiers. Mm-hmm. Uh, there had been British soldiers going back to the 1660s in New York, right. but uh, this is the first time you see such a concentration, and it's. During the summer, they go out to fight uh, in Canada and in the West, but in the winter, they're wintered in New York and Philadelphia mm-hmm. and uh, Boston. Uh, and so that becomes, the colonists have to think very differently about right. what to do with these soldiers and concepts of space. Uh, because the ideas of space I find so interesting because they, they, they're all contingent. Uh-huh. So if you say you don't want soldiers in your house, well, then where do you put them? Right. Uh, and so the, 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 the answer in the 1750s is let's build barracks. Mm-hmm. So again, all the major tent cities throw up these massive barracks uh, capable of holding thousands of men. Uh, but then that changes the meaning of the city. Because yeah. now you have this permanent military structure in the middle of the city. So where City Hall sits today in New York City, there was a barracks there in the yeah. 1750s, right? Uh, in the uh, suburbs of Philadelphia was a massive barracks. So this changes the neighborhood. It changes the city. And so then, you know, now that now you've now you've now you've changed that space, and this makes people right. think: Well, is it enough to simply keep soldiers out of our homes, or do we want them in our cities? Uh, at what point is it is military power safe? Yeah. At what distance? At what concealing? Uh, is it con- uh, concealment? Is it safe? Yeah. Now that you know, we become a garrison state, you know, what does that mean for Charleston or, or whatever? Yeah. 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 Exactly. Well, I mean, let, let's um, let let me ask it this way. You know, so. Let's say, for example, that I'm a member of the 42nd Regiment foot. That's my favorite regiment because it's the Royal Highland Regiment. Okay. Okay, let's say I, I embark at Glasgow in the 1750s and I show up in New York, Philadelphia, six weeks later. I'm going to fight in the French and Indian War. Um, what, what kind of homes would I have encountered uh, in those kinds of cities in those periods? And, and, you know, right at this moment when people are starting to think about public versus private, what, right. what is an actual home 
for a regular Joe Schmo colonist look right. like? Right. Yeah, I mean, for the re- regular Joe Schmo colonist, it's going to be two rooms, right, in an attic. This is the basic home, so, uh, and all sorts of activities are going on in the home. Uh, so uh, the records we have suggest that soldiers, when they are barracking people or billeted in people's homes, that they are, you know, they, they, uh-huh. they sleep wherever. Uh, some, they might be sleeping in the beds with the colonists. They might be sleeping on the floor. Uh, uh, you know, but but there's not a lot of differentiation of yeah. spaces and within that house. Um, so they're they're really, in a sense, the sort of dual meaning of your of your title. They're accommodating uh, in terms of actually providing them quarters, and they're accommodating in terms of actually putting up with them. Yes, yeah. yes, <laughs> yes. pretty pretty close quarters and sleeping in the same yeah. bed. Yeah, yeah, okay. right. Yeah, no, there seems and, and there seems to be some concern about that. I mean, this is this is uh, when when Richard Nichols shows up in uh, 1664 to take. New Amsterdam uh-huh. from the Dutch and turn into New York. Uh, he, they put soldiers in people's houses because they have they've run out of places to put to. them. Uh, and and uh, but it is interesting. There seems to be a limit on. There's an intimacy. There's a sense of the soldiers are not expected to be in the beds with the colonists, um, uh-huh. which seems to be the limit. Uh, which is sort of interesting that they are. And, and this is, I think, part of a larger discourse which gets lost as they start thinking of the whole house as protected, but. Are there places in the house that are more private than mm-hmm. others, right? Is the bed a more private area than the kitchen uh, or the hearth? Uh, and so it, uh, and, and at the time they would say yes, of course. Right. <laughs> Where people are sleeping is, is, is much more private. Uh, but but and that and that and that and that seems to percolate through mm-hmm. even into the 1750s, where people will talk about uh, the greatest offense is, of course, a soldier is going to come into your house uh, and, and want to be in your bed. And of course the, the implication is always of rape, right, uh, that, right. that the soldier is a sexual predator who is raping daughters and wives. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that that's, that's the great fear of quartering. Thinking about the 1750s, um, and thinking about the different approaches that say Charleston or Massachusetts or Philadelphians are taking to support the troops, um, Lord Loudon, who is the commander-in-chief of British forces, kind of almost like the de facto viceroy of America in the early part of the, the French and Indian War, the Seven Years' War in America, he has very different expectations about what the colonists should be doing. Right. And so what, what, is, what does Lord Loudon believe the colonists should do for his men? Right, right. Well, Loudon uh, comes from the perspective, and it's not, a, not necessarily a crazy one, but that <laughs> it, it's a time of war. Uh-huh. Uh, the soldiers have to be quartered. And so just these, these distinctions between public and private may have great meaning in peacetime, but in wartime, they fall away. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think we see remnants of that even in the Third Amendment, uh, the way it's written today. Uh, so, and the colonists, of course, object to this, because to them, one, the cities they're being quartered in, New York, Philadelphia, aren't being attacked directly. Right. And two, it's a sense of, no, privacy, the, 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 what, that the house is sacrosanct mm-hmm. uh, against government intrusion, does not go away when there's a war on. Uh, you still have sure. to ask people's permission and pay them for those quarters, and the columns have the right to say no. But at the end of the day, like he needs to put them somewhere, and he's got to he's got to figure out what to he do. needs to put them somewhere. Yeah, I mean, and, and it's and there's a lot of horror stories. Of what happens, especially it's in New Jersey and um, Maryland, down in Annapolis, he just sends a regiment down and says, "Go find places," yeah. uh, and they just go right into people's homes. And I think Trenton. Uh, I went through the records uh, in New Jersey of the of what happens in Trenton, and. From my estimation, it looked like there were about 130 houses in Trenton in 1756, 1757. 121 of them, uh, except soldiers uh, during the winter of uh, 56, 57. Uh, and so it's, it's, I mean, they're everywhere. Uh, and of course, it's, it's the cities. It's places like New sure. York, Philadelphia, Charleston, who have alternate places to put troops. Mm-hmm. So 
uh, either taverns or in Philadelphia, they send them to the newly built Pennsylvania Hospital. In Charleston, it's an old school building. Yeah. Uh, so there's a luxury that the cities have that the small towns don't small have. Small towns don't, um, yeah. What uh, raises the question, what, what kind of sources are you looking at? Because you just mentioned, you, 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 I think you said you, you counted 131 homes in Trenton yeah. in 55, 56, 57. What, you know, how are you figuring all this out? Are, are you looking at uh, tax lists or, you know, how, what are the, what's your source base? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so a lot of my research does come out of the, uh, starts with the Gage Papers at the Clemens uh-huh. Library. So, I mean, which is the official correspondence. And then I did uh, shorter trips to, oh, Columbia, South Carolina, Charleston, Philadelphia, New York, uh, the uh, National Archives at, uh, at Q. Uh-huh. Um, oh, nice. Uh, yeah, <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's a very nice experience. Uh, always, always a good excuse to go to London. Yeah. Uh, but in New Jersey, uh, going back to your question about billets, uh, and billeting is what they had collected at the New Jersey State Archives, are basically uh-huh. um, you know the slips of paper. Oh, they've got the tickets. and and a, and a table basically laying out. You know, this soldier was in this this person's house for this many days and this many months, uh, well, that's and this awesome. is what the cost will be. Yeah, uh, which I hadn't seen. I hadn't hadn't found anything else like that comparable uh, for another situation, another location. Well, I imagine that probably really helped your thinking too, because. A lot of what you're doing is sort of own mental geography, but now you've got something you can actually sort of visualize yeah. on paper and yeah. see what that looks like. Yeah, definitely, definitely. It'd be kind of a fun to do a little digital project on that too. You'd yeah. Be, you know, lay it out in the space. Yeah. Well, how, you know, you talked about um, the fact that, you know, during the French and Indian War, you know, some, you know, some homes are quartering soldiers, but then the colonies start to decide, you know, let's, let's build some barracks mm-hmm. as a means to sort of, you get soldiers out of the home, but still have that military presence we need so we can be good British Americans and help fight the, the damn French <laughs> on the frontier. Um, what kind of negotiations were you seeing between people like Loudon or other military commanders with colonial officials as they're trying to figure out good ways to resolve right. these, um, I guess you could call them constitutional issues, yeah. constitutional questions that these, these acts are raising? Yeah, and I think that's, I think, uh, well, I think Loudon is always sort of an outlier because uh, Amherst, uh, who follows, and uh, certainly Gage, yeah. are much more sensitive to colonial sensitivities. Right. Uh, they realize that there's no point having an army if, if you're just going to outrage the colonists who are going to chase the army out of town. Yeah. So they're much more, they're much, they're much clearer about this. And Gage seems to be, at least early on in his, his uh, administration, is very, is very sensitive to trying to make sure the colonists and the soldiers are getting along the best they can. Uh, and I think having barracks is part of that. Uh, but certainly, I, in some of my research looking at uh, the troops, so after, this, after the French and Indian War ends, the troops remain uh, in New York and Philadelphia mm-hmm. and Charleston, and, and they really become part of the cities. Uh, and so you, uh, public celebrations of the king's birthday mm-hmm. or um, celebrations of, of uh, you know, royal holidays or some civilians and soldiers come together. Um, and the, certainly uh, colonists can choose to quarter troops in their houses, and so they will rent out spaces sure. as officers usually, uh, men who can pay pretty good money and are more well-behaved than, than an enlisted man. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but, so you, but you still have young officers or enlisted men who are causing problems in the cities, uh, and so what do they do with that? And what I was able to find is that the civil, military and civilian officials seem to work together pretty well, uh, mm-hmm. To resolve the issue, uh, they want to. They always want to pull back from the type of uh, conflict we'll ultimately see at the Boston Massacre. Yeah. Uh, and they do work together. If, if there's a soldier, he's probably drunk, or he was probably a deserter, mm-hmm. and so the civilian officials will do what they can to stop him, but ultimately will just send him back to the army, and the army will detain the man uh, and find some punishment usually for him. But they, but with with rare exception, up until Boston, 
uh, the and, it, and with the exception of Boston, is yeah. the the civilian and military officials seem to work pretty well together at at keeping the soldiers in line. So, is it your sense then? Well, actually, let me let me uh, let me come back to come back to that in a second, uh, because you know a lot of the fighting, as you say, is taking place in Canada and the borderlands, you know, out in the Ohio country and in, right. in Quebec and whatnot. And so the soldiers are coming back in the winter. But so what's what's the nature of quartering on the frontier then, or in the back country? How right. how are they dealing with that necessity as well out yeah. there, where there are the, there are not these urban spaces where they can put loads of troops right um, in homes with with some regularity right so and in, in the field of course uh, I mean troops would be would be intense yeah uh, but then uh, in terms of the cities that are or the or the towns that are in the in the, the nuke territories mm-hmm. that the British are conquering during the French Indian War is the soldiers go right into houses so uh, Montreal falls in 1760 mm-hmm. to the British and five years later there are still soldiers forcibly quartered in people's houses oh. in Montreal. Uh, same thing with St. Augustine, when the British take St. Augustine from the Spanish uh, as part of the trades huh. at the end of the war. Uh, they send troops down in 1764, and they're still living in houses by 67, 68, even into 69. Wow. In Detroit, uh, is the same thing. The sure. troops show up in 1760 after the fall of Montreal, and they're still living there in people's houses. And it's this notion that, of course, these are conquered peoples who mm-hmm. then have, they don't have constitutional rights because they are at the, at the pleasure of the British Army. Yeah. Uh, and so some of the negotiation, which will, will, will come out later, will be Britain does want these to become colonies, civilian colonies, so it creates Quebec in particular, mm-hmm. but East Florida, West Florida. And at that point, then, you can't put soldiers in people's houses because <laughs> yeah. it's no longer a military conquest. Now yeah. it's a civilian colony, and you have to follow the same laws that all the other American colonies have mm-hmm. to follow. And then the Quartering Act at that point will invalidate putting troops in people's houses uh, against their will and without any compensation. Well, getting to that point, because you talked about, you know, the the Quebec uh, becomes a British province, east and west Florida. Um, And by the 1760s, the the British are very actively engaged in trying to figure out how to reform the empire. Uh, Doesn't go so well with the Stamp Act uh, (laughs) or the Townshend duties in 1767, but... What I found really interesting about the Quartering Act, as you describe it, is that people like Thomas Gage, people like Benjamin Franklin, saw it as a kind of means to codify the negotiations that had taken place between British military authorities and civilian authorities with respect to quartering. And that they see this as kind of a, not a way to complete the unification of the empire, but a, a means toward that end or taking a step in that direction in ways that... Um, don't provoke the kind of serious outrage you might have seen with the Stamp Act or or, or the T Act or one of those other acts. So, what what are they what were they thinking about when they're when they're uh, arguing to Parliament that they should pass a an American Mutiny Act, right. or Quartering Act that's going to achieve this broader vision of empire? Yeah, I mean, I, I the 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 law comes out of uh, Gage's recommendation that that New York, the governor, or rather the mayor of New York, has told him. There's no law to force me to quarter soldiers, which means there's no law for us to upkeep, keep up the barracks and to provide supplies to the men living in there, like firewood, candles, um, vinegar, uh, things yeah. like that. Uh, and so Gage says, well, let's just write one. Yeah. Uh, and so he, he has, uh, he has his, uh, one of his, uh, uh, James Robertson, one of his, basically his lieutenants, one of his generals, write down these ideas, and he sort of puts the whole thing together and sends it to Parliament, sends it to Whitehall. Yeah. And his idea is that uh, they'll just amend the Mutiny Act, uh, the, the Mutiny Act of 1689, which gets passed mm-hmm. every year by Parliament, that they'll just add a section saying, oh, and this also applies to America. Right. 
uh, except the Mutiny Act had already been passed by Parliament that year uh-huh. by the time uh, Gage's recommendations show up, and so then uh, the, the ministers at Whitehall have to come up with a separate law, which mm-hmm. is why we have the Quartering Act instead of just the Mutiny Act changing. Sure. Uh, they want something immediately. And, and it's interesting because, yeah, initially Gage does recommend put a provision in this law saying, if need be, we can, sol- we can quarter soldiers in people's private houses. Mm-hmm. And uh, this, it's, it's actually King George III <laughs> who says, this is never going to fly. <laughs> uh, this is unconstitutional and the Americans are going are gonna to lose it. Uh, you can't go for this. Yeah. Uh, and his, his ministers all ignore him. Grenville, who is the idiot who's coming up with the Stamp Act, yeah. uh, the prime minister at the time says, ah, who cares? Uh, so, but, par- but he's right, and Parliament t- d- won't pass the Quartering Act with this uh, provision allowing there to be pr- quartering of soldiers in private houses. And so, yeah, it's Franklin um, and um, uh, Thomas Ponnell, who had been governor of Massachusetts previously, who come up with this idea, mm-hmm. um, take that part out, uh, and we'll be fine. And, and, and the way I sort of think about this is, is we're getting to see here a notion where what's being imagined by Franklin and, and by Ponnell and some of the others is that the empire can be much larger and can be much more, much better inter- integrated mm-hmm. uh, so that there are rights the colonists should have as British subjects, and this includes the right not to have to have troops quartered in your house against mm-hmm. your will. However, there's a, there's a responsibility that comes along with that right, and that responsibility is you're going to have to pay yeah. to upkeep the barracks and to supply them when you have troops in them. And so this is, the, this is sort of the idea that I think is how they're understanding it, is that the Americans are going to have ver- the same rights and responsibilities as Britons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but at the end of the day, someone's got to pay. Someone's got to pay. pay the bill. Yeah, yeah. Why does it all change in 1768 when Gage and his troops arrive in Boston? Uh, I think Boston, well, Boston's uh, the outlier. Uh, and it's <laughs> it's an outlier, but it's it's also, I guess there's two things. One is is that there are no barracks in Boston. Uh, there were barracks on Castle Island out in the harbor, uh, which was enough to hold probably a regiment. But, of course, they send four regiments. Yeah. Uh, in, seven, in October 1768, and so they have to go somewhere. Uh, and so there's a sense of Boston has never built barracks. Boston has never had troops in the city the way Philadelphia, New York, Pennsylvania, or, uh, uh, Charleston, South Carolina had. And so they're not able to, uh, to sort of deal with this and understand this. And, and this has gone back many years. The other thing is the troops who were in New York and Philadelphia and Charleston are there basically just they're just stationed there. Yeah. They're not supposed to do anything uh, unless the governor uh, has permission from his council or the assembly to allow them to do civilian law enforcement. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Boston, the troops are being sent in by the Earl of Hillsborough, uh, who's the Secretary of State for the Colonies at the time, to uh, basically to crack heads, yeah. uh, to, to be uh, civilian law enforcement, to allow there to be the collection of customs duties uh, and to stop the harassment of royal officials, which is a very different approach to troops, the use of troops, mm-hmm. uh, than we've seen elsewhere. And Gage warns him against that this is a bad idea. Yeah. This is not going to go well um, because of these reasons, because of both Boston's history and and how you're intending to use the troops, and Hillsborough uh, waves this off. But ultimately, Boston does prove Gage right. Uh, yeah. they, they don't accommodate the troops. Uh, they're very hostile to them, uh, which then makes the troops hostile in return. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and you get to 1770 then, and then right. it all goes completely wrong. Right. I always, you know, Gage, I think, sometimes gets a bad rap, but he always comes off to me as a very reasonable man. Like, he's sort of thinking through the problems very carefully. He realizes the implications of what Whitehall is asking him to do, and, and he's pushing back a little bit. And he, he can't override his civilian authorities, but right. he, he kind of sees what's coming if, 
in a lot of ways of Hillsborough and, and those folks right. keep taking those steps. Well, I think Gage, yeah, I think Gage is also a Whig, right? He's yeah. a, he's a, he's a, he's, yeah. he's an under, no understanding of their rights, their, uh, their limits to the, yeah. the government's power. I think he has a very clear notion of that. Uh, at the same time, he's of course deeply loyal to the king and, sure. and his, in his position in the army. Um, and I think that he's, he, he, in some sense is the, especially with, with quartering and, and later the quartering act is he's sort of this, you know, uh, he's the Cassandra, right? Yeah. He's warning everybody and they're all ignoring him. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and of course, and I think, I think Gage also changes over time. So by the time he ends up in Massachusetts as governor in 1774, yeah. I think he's not nearly as sharp as he had been early on. Mm. Um, and he makes a lot of serious blunders, which will of course get us to Lexington and right. Concord. Not as politically astute by the time he, he decides he's not yeah. going to call an assembly anytime soon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How does this play out in the revolution? Um, because your revolution is a, a civil war, and so you've got soldiers on both sides, and right. you've got urban warfare as, and a, as much as warfare in the, in the back country. But, you know, how is this... How are, how are American colonists-turned-citizens dealing with the fact that they're being asked to put up with sometimes British soldiers, sometimes right. with American soldiers? Right. Yeah, no, and I think that's, that's, that's true, and, and, uh, and it's, it's, it's very interesting because the, uh, in the Declaration of Independence, as you mentioned earlier, the, the colonists denounce uh, the king for quartering troops, uh, and yet when we get to the actual war itself, uh, both the Britons and the Americans are quartering troops all over the place, wherever they can put them. Uh, and so and the key example is always Philadelphia, yeah. which, of course, is held uh, by American forces until, uh, until the British arrive, mm-hmm. and then the British forces will force themselves into houses. The British withdraw, the American troops return, and they force themselves into, into some of those same houses. Uh, and, and it's interesting because the, the colonial uh, Bill of Rights that, come at, that are attached to the different state, early state yeah. constitutions, none of them mention <laughs> anything about quartering. Uh, they're very <laughs> taciturn on that. It's only after the war seems to really beginning to die down that they start yeah. finding a, 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 the language of constitutionality and, and making and taking a stronger stance against this this policy of quartering. And then after the war, they start ripping down the barracks. Yeah, right? yeah. No, the I mean, today, of course, the only barracks that are still standing are the ones in Trenton, yeah. uh, which are preserved as a museum. But uh, they get, re- it's interesting, uh, a lot of them are, Torn down, I think, and I think they weren't the best built buildings. They were thrown up very quickly. They were wooden in most places. I think by the 1790s, I know New York, uh, when George Washington is, is is in New York for, as president, um, there's there's comments on these these barracks are, are basically a fire hazard, dilapidated. Yeah, and they, and they tear they tear them down as quickly as they can. It, it, in other places, they get repurposed. Uh, so it's uh, they save the officers' quarters in Philadelphia till 1880 as basically a community center. Oh. Uh, in Charleston, the, one of the set of barracks of the brick barracks get turned into the College oh, of Charleston. The college, yeah. Yeah, uh, and and so they, some of them get repurposed and get yeah. live on, but um, yeah, they they ultimately come down. And they're and they're not barracks. Most importantly, they're yeah. not they're not military installations. After really after the, the the creation of the republic, when the Americans make really make a conscious choice that military bases are going to be kept away from right. civilian populations, and, right. and, and um, you know as urbanization has increased over the past you know two hundred years, that those spaces have become kind of melded again, right. I guess. And so, what what do you see as the legacies of of quartering um, in early America, yeah. or the either the young republic, or even in our own time? Right, and I think there. I mean, I think it's. Uh, I, I mean, a couple of things. I mean, I think, I think notions of space, of course, remain key, and I think some of the ways are talked about here in the 1750s, 1760s do get, do play out today. Private versus public spaces, and um, and what what is the city? Right, as you were mentioning, I yeah. think there is a sort of an idea that the city should not be a place of war, 
Mm -hmm. uh, the city should be a place of peace. You keep soldiers outside of New York and Philadelphia. I mean, they can come as tourists, but yeah. they can't come as conquering, <laughs> occupying armies. Uh, come spend your money, but just don't bring your <laughs> exactly. guns. Yeah. Yeah. Which, is, which is always so interesting. So you go to public parks in Boston, right? You go to Boston Common, and yeah. there's, there's monuments to soldiers. Sure. But, you know, there's no sense that there were actually ever soldiers actually living right, there, right, right, uh, right. quartered there. Um, so I think that's a piece of it. I mean, I think it's also just sort of this notion of of how we imagine space, how we, as, as civilian versus military, that uh, the critique is, of course, um, with drones, uh, with nuclear weapons, yeah. uh, with terrorism, basically, we're, we're, we're at this moment of the everywhere war. Uh -huh. There's no place you can be on Earth where you can't be attacked. There's not going to be some something that will could kill you in, yeah. as an act of war. Uh, but I think that presupposes that there is a division between civilian and military space, mm -hmm. that there are places we understand where soldiers belong and places where soldiers do not belong. And so what I really believe I was doing with quarters is, is where does that notion come from? Where does that dichotomy born? And I think that dichotomy does come out of the, of the 18th century, mm -hmm. of these debates over quartering British soldiers uh, leading up to the American Revolution. Well, uh, where do you think you're going to go next? Are, you know, do you have a next project in mind? Are you, are you going to go down to Clements again and just start looking through some cool stuff? Yeah, and yeah, no. <laughs> I, I seem to be stuck in the, uh, in the, in the British Army uh, in, the, in the eve of the revolution, so uh, there's a couple different projects I'm, I'm hoping to, to pursue, but um, right now I'm at the fun stage of just uh, researching and imagining what, what could be next. Oh, that's exciting. Well, that's the fun part. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. Well, Professor McCurdy, uh, we want to thank you very much for coming in and speaking with us today. Um, we know you have a book talk to get to in a little bit, and so you've been very generous with your time. We don't want to wear you out, and thank you very much. Well, thank you very much. This has been a lot of fun for me. Great. Thanks so much. Did you get everything you wanted? Yeah, I think so. Okay, great. Yeah, yeah that was great. Thanks so much. Sure. Love that. Yeah, I really like the book. I, as I said, I, I think most people just sort of thought, Thanks for listening to Conversations at the Washington Library, a production of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Ambusky, with assistance from Mason Shelby of Mount Vernon's Media and Communications Division. Our theme was composed and performed by Ginger and David Hillebrand. If you'd like to support this podcast, as well as new research into George Washington and his world, please consider becoming a Mount Vernon member. More information is on the webpage for this podcast at www.mountvernon.org slash podcast. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.